Well, I hope you don't get inspired by today's sermon title, which is How to Destroy a Church in Three Weeks. I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to destroy grace. I hope that three weeks from now, you have not succeeded in destroying this church family. But that's all it really takes to destroy a church. Really, just three weeks. That's it. In a blog post from the Gospel Coalition many years back, Ray Ortland said, how to rescue your church in three weeks. And rescue is in quotes. Here's what he says, and he's telling us, really, how easy it is to destroy a church in just three weeks. Week one, walk into church this Sunday and think about how long you've been a member, how much you've sacrificed, how underappreciated you are. Take note of every way you're dissatisfied with your church now. Take note of every person who displeases you. Take note of all the new people whose presence is changing your church. Meet for coffee next week with another member and share your heart. Discuss how much your church is changing, how you and others are being left out. Ask your friend who else in the church has concerns. Agree together that you must pray about it. Week two, send an email to a few other concerned members. Inform them that a groundswell of grievance is surfacing in your church Problems have gone unaddressed for too long. Ask them to keep the matter to themselves for the sake of the body. As complaints come in, form them into a petition to demand an accounting from the leaders of the church. Circulate the petition quietly. Gathering support will be easy. Even happy members can be used if you appeal to their sense of fairness that your side deserves a hearing too. Be sure to proceed in a way that conforms to your church constitution so that your petition is procedurally correct. Week three, when the growing moral fervor, ill-defined but powerful, reaches critical mass, confront the elders with your demands. Inform them of all the woundedness in the church, which leaves you with no choice but to put your petition forward. Inform them that, for the sake of reconciliation, the concerns of the body must be satisfied. Whatever happens from this point on, you have won. You have changed the subject in your church from gospel advance to your own negativity. To some degree, you will get your way. Your church will need several years to recover, but at any future time, you can do it all again and keep your church exactly where you want it. It only takes Three weeks. In some sense, that's exactly what happened at the church in Corinth. Paul planted this church. He's been their pastor. He loves them. But they began doubting his leadership capabilities and qualifications. They didn't think he was a good pastor. They didn't think he loved them. And they started having conversations with one another. And soon the culture of the entire church was changing through conversations, and that's how it happens, isn't it? As the 90s grunge band Stone Temple Pilots sang in their song, Big Empty, conversation kills. Tongues destroy churches. Conversations destroy churches. 
And if that wasn't bad enough, the Corinthians began entertaining this group of false teachers that you know now, and then Paul will call them once again super apostles in our passage today. These false teachers, these super apostles, denied justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They taught that obedience to the Mosaic law, obedience to all those laws in the Old Testament, That's how you earned salvation, how you earned God's favor. And this teaching was spreading through the church in Corinth. And in three weeks or so, and we don't actually know how long it took, probably a couple months, but in three weeks or so, the church at Corinth was in danger of completely falling apart. The church culture was rapidly changing from gospel advance in the wicked, perverted city of Corinth to God-dishonoring negativity in conversations and works righteousness. And so Paul is planning on a third visit to this church that he planted because they are at critical mass. This church is bleeding out and bleeding out fast. But it may be destroyed before Paul ever gets there. And Paul has already warned the Corinthians about what happens to people who try to destroy the church. Speaking of the corporate body, the church at Corinth, Paul told them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, do you not know that you, the collected church body, that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you or dwells in y'all? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Listen, God will destroy anyone who tries to destroy his church. Let me say that again. Jesus will destroy anyone who tries to destroy his church. He will take out anyone who tries to mess up his church in some way, according to his own wisdom and his own ways, Jesus will deal with anyone who starts spreading cancerous DNA through his church. If someone tries to destroy Jesus' bride, you can bet your hard-earned dollar that he is going to deal with those people. Sobering words, aren't they? And I've seen it, and you've probably seen it too. I've seen people cause trouble in Christ's church, and then I've seen trouble invade their life. I've seen people start spreading gossip and slandering and causing division and stirring up strife, and then I've seen their life start falling apart. I've seen the Lord discipline them. So understand this, there is a direct correlation to those who try to destroy Christ's church and their own life being destroyed and falling apart. There's a direct correlation to those who stir up strife and trouble and then their own life just crumbling to pieces. So these are very sobering words, aren't they? Turn to 2 Corinthians 12. Paul will now begin wrapping up this letter and then he plans on visiting the Corinthians as soon as he can because he wants to stop the bleeding 
and to deal with the sin that is rampant in this church. And then at the very top of this list, Paul also plans on kicking the super apostles to the curb and throwing all their belongings out on the front lawn. I mean, he wants to get them out of there. But how do we keep from destroying this church, this church family? How do we keep from destroying our own lives? Well, the answer lies in what Robert Murray Machane famously said, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. That's kind of the angle that I want to approach this passage today, that if Paul could sum up what he's saying to them, is like, for every look at yourself and your problems and everything that's going on in your church and all the conversations that you're hearing, for every one of those, every one of those one conversation that you have about somebody in your church, he says, for every one of those, take 10 looks at Jesus. That's how we keep from happening here at Grace what was happening at the church in Corinth. We must keep our eyes on Jesus constantly. And that means that we have to move beyond our petty hurts and misperceptions and instead turn our eyes upon Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 11. Hear the word of the Lord. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So Paul calls himself a fool here. That's my life verse, I think. It just came to me. It just dawned on me. I think that's my life verse. I have been a fool. Paul calls himself a fool here because he has had to boast, boast of his weaknesses and defend his ministry to the Corinthians in order to get the Corinthians to come back to the pure gospel. Now, what should have happened, Paul says, is that they should have stood up for him. They should have defended him when the super apostles lodged all of their accusations against him. And Paul says here that he is in no way inferior to these super apostles, even though he knows that he's nothing. He's been humbled by the cross. And he's been humbled by that pesky, God-won't-remove-it thorn. And so Paul knows that he's a nobody. He's nothing compared to Jesus Christ. But the super apostles, on the other hand, were claiming a superior uh, spirituality, this triumphalistic spirituality. Uh, They claimed to be better than Paul, and they were casting doubt on his apostleship and leadership. But Paul says in verse 12 that the signs of a true apostle were performed among the Corinthian church with utmost patience. Notice that Paul says that These signs and wonders and miracles were performed among the Corinthians. This is probably another instance of what Greek scholars call a divine passive, where God is the one who performed these miracles through the Apostle Paul. It wasn't Paul, the super spiritual leader who always enjoyed mountaintop experiences and was always formidable and always triumphant doing these miracles. It was God doing them through a very weak Paul. And how were these signs and wonders and mighty works performed among the Corinthians? 
Paul says here, with patience. A, a better rendering of this word is endurance. The same word endure is used in 2 Corinthians 1.6. So I think that's a better translation. What Paul is saying then is that it was in the context of all of the immense suffering that he endured. Chapter 1 kind of stuff where he said it was so bad we didn't even want to live anymore. It was in the context of all of this immense suffering that Paul went through in his ministry day after day after day. It was in that context that these miracles were performed among the Corinthian church through Paul. Thus showing that the power had come from God and not Paul. What the super apostles failed to see was that the sign of a true apostle, someone sent by God, is endurance in suffering. The signs and wonders and miracles and mighty works were only performed by God to validate the ministry as the gospel spread through the Gentile world. So miracles and mountaintop experiences are not the ultimate sign of apostleship. Rather, enduring immense suffering is the ultimate sign of a true minister. And Paul is living proof. So Paul endured the pains of ministry as God did these miracles through him. And it's a reminder... That endurance is needed in a church even more than miracles. Let that sink in while I get a drink of water, okay? Endurance is needed in a church even more than miracles. You simmer, I'll sip. Yes, God does miracles, but that's not what a church needs most. A suffering church needs endurance. And a church needs endurance even when there are miracles happening in that church body. Think about that. A church needs endurance even when there are miracles happening. Now, we might think that there would be no need of endurance if we were seeing all kinds of signs and wonders and miracles and mighty works. But that's not true. It's not true because the hype of miracles, the goosebumps of miracles, that wears off. Miracles don't have the sustaining power that we need. What does? The gospel. The gospel provides what is needed to endure because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, not miracles. Miracles don't provide power. Miracles wear off. Miracles don't have the ability to provide you with endurance when you are suffering, but sufficient grace does. And so miracles wear off, but the gospel doesn't wear off because that's the real miracle, isn't it? The real miracle that never gets old, the real miracle that never has an expiration date, the real miracle that never goes out of style is that God loves sinners and he saves them by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That miracle, the gospel, Christ crucified for sinners, a really, really good God being really, really good to really, really bad sinners, that miracle 
never wears off. And it's that miracle that helps to create a church community. Miracles cannot sustain a church long term. What can? The gospel. And that's what the Corinthians needed. God had done miracles through Paul when he was at Corinth, but those miracles obviously were not sustaining the church because this church has all kinds of problems. They were bleeding out, and miracles were not the answer. Signs and wonders were not the answer. Mighty works were not the answer. The miracles that Paul performed obviously We're not sustaining this church because miracles can't do that. They're not designed to do that. But should we pray for miracles? Yes, of course. Duh. Should we expect miracles, anticipate miracles? Yes, of course. Duh. Does God do miraculous things? Does he answer our prayers? Does he heal people? Does he intervene? Yes, of course. Duh. Just read the Bible. We serve a miracle-working God, and we should expect him to do miracles. But that's not our bread and butter. The gospel is. Christ crucified is. Christ crucified is our bread and butter. If miracles were everything, then what happens when God doesn't answer your prayer? What happens when there is no miracle and your loved one dies no matter how much you pray? What happens then? The miracles that were performed through Paul is not what this church needed again. They needed the power of the gospel. And they needed to stop all the misconceptions and misperceptions and misunderstandings that they had because those things were bleeding this church dry and they were souring their relationship that they had with their beloved apostle Paul. And that's what Paul says next. So look at verse 13. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say. And got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? So the Corinthian church began believing that Paul favored and liked and loved other churches that he had planted because he took financial support from those other churches. But Paul did not want to be a burden to the Corinthian church and take their money, any financial support from them. And how did they take it? They were offended. But why did Paul not take financial support from the Corinthians? Well, he gives us the answer in verse 14. He says, For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. 
This is typically how life works, isn't it? Parents give to their children. That's what a good parent does. They help and support their kids. So Paul is just saying that in general, this is what helps. This is what happens. Parents help their kids. And that's why Paul will not take financial support from the Corinthians. He is their spiritual father, and he is determined to not receive help from them, even though he takes financial support from other churches. Now, why would Paul do this? Why take support from other churches, but not the Corinthians? Because that's how parents work. They deal specifically with each individual child. Parents, aren't every one of your children different? Isn't there a different way to deal with each of your individual different? They have different personalities. Yes, you raise them biblically and you parent them from the gospel, but doesn't how you parent from the gospel vary with each individual child? That's Paul's point here. He is dealing with the Corinthian church differently than other churches because he, their spiritual father, knows what they need. Father knows best. And it's all proof of his love for them. As he says in verse 14, he doesn't want their money. He wants them. He's not seeking their help, but their hearts. He says that he would gladly spend and be spent for the Corinthians. He loves them deeply. And all of this is evidence of Paul's sacrificial love for them, but the Corinthians were doubting that love. Paul wants to spend and be spent for them. He doesn't want their stuff. He wants them. But the Corinthians were actually withholding their love, withholding their affections from Paul. They, Paul says here, says, you guys think I'm being crafty? You think I'm trying to get the better of you through some deceptive method? And even though he says, even though I sent Titus and the brother, whoever that was, to you, he says, they acted in the same way that I did. They genuinely care and love, for you, and love you. But the Corinthians were doubting their motives. And all of that, all of these thoughts they were having in their heads, all of these conversations that they were having, well, I don't think that Paul loves us because he doesn't take support from us. All of those little things began souring their relationship with Paul and company. Look at verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you, find, you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you. And I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Now, we know from the first letter that there was a lot of impurity and sexual immorality and sensuality going on in this church because this church Paul planted was in Corinth. They had a word for this kind of perverted sexuality. It was called to Corinthianize. I mean, they had their own word for how you did those things in your bedroom and under the sheets, all those wicked things. So Paul fears, when I show up at Corinth, 
I fear you guys are going to be a hot mess. I fear the church culture will have changed dramatically because sin has run rampant and these people have not repented of their sin. Paul knows that no church can survive with this kind of church culture. And Grace Baptist Church of Santa Maria cannot thrive or survive if we let sin of any kind, but especially this kind, run rampant in our church family. We want to create and to sustain and foster a church culture here that is antithetical to what Paul lists here. We don't want any of these things here. Quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, disorder, impurity, immorality, and sensuality. That stuff has no place in a church body. That stuff will bleed a church dry. That stuff will kill a church. Not to say that we don't struggle with things and don't want. I'm talking about running rampant to where people do these things and they say it doesn't matter. That's what I'm talking about. That stuff pleases the devil and it dishonors Jesus. And we want to honor Jesus here. We exist for his glory, not for our own opinions and feelings and preferences. We want and we're fighting for a church culture here at Grace where we honor one another and we welcome one another as Jesus has welcomed us and we love one another and we're honest with one another and we encourage one another and we give each other the benefit of the doubt. In other words, we don't want to let what happened at Corinth happen here at Grace. The Corinthians were cooking up new misperceptions about Paul and company all day long. They misunderstood Paul and his friends. There was this deep-seated level of mistrust. They were accusing Paul of a number of things like lying and being deceitful. And so Paul is trying to clear up these misperceptions in our passage today. Paul tells him that he and his ministry partners love this church, regardless of what they think, regardless of their misperceptions. He told them earlier in 2 Corinthians 6 that his heart was wide open to them, but they were the ones who had closed off their affections. And sadly... Their misperceptions about Paul and his ministry have soured their relationship and caused the Corinthians to close off their hearts, close off their affections to Paul and his friends. And so understand this grace, and we've talked about this before in this series, but it bears repeating because this is so important for churches to understand. Misperceptions can sour relationships. Misperceptions can sour our relationships. Misperceptions and making assumptions about people can kill a church. Sadly, the Corinthians' misperceptions about Paul and his friends And their ministry has soured the relationship that they have. They don't trust Paul anymore. They think he's manipulating them. They think he's being deceitful. They think he doesn't love them. And they think they know what Paul's motives are. And now the relationship has turned sour. And that can happen anywhere, can it? 
in a church, in your workplace, in your family. We're all prone to do this. We start to think that we know what someone's motives are, and we think that we know what's going on in their hearts. I know why they did what they did. We think we know what's going on in their hearts, but we can't. But then what do we do? We begin to act differently. We may hear things about people that may not be true, and then we act on what we heard as if it was true, and it may not be, and we begin treating people differently. And we might be dead wrong. And we might have just ruined a relationship based on something we thought or something we heard. We begin to think differently and treat people differently based on what we heard someone say about them or based on our so-called discernment and perception of their heart. But misperceptions and misunderstandings can and will sour human hearts and can and will destroy a church family. And the book of 2 Corinthians is all the proof that you need. This book and this section is all about how misperceptions and misunderstandings can sour and kill a church family. Listen, we are just... I know we think we, we can do this, okay? But we are just not competent enough to do what the Corinthians are claiming to do here. We are not skilled in judging human hearts. We can't. We do not have that skill set. We are not that talented. We are not that perceptive because we aren't God. Even though we act like it. Only Jesus can see and read human hearts. Only Jesus knows the motives of a human heart. We don't. You know what? Sometimes we don't even know the motives of our own heart. That's sobering, isn't it? The Corinthians thought they could read Paul's heart, and it began to sour their relationship. They were having conversations with the super apostles, and they began assuming what Paul's motives were. Why he's not taking money from us. Why he hasn't come to visit us. Why did he send Titus and the brother and not come himself? So they're having these conversations and they're hearing things about Paul that are not true. But they took it as fact and began to act on that. And that was causing this church to just bleed out all over the place. Let's not do that as a church, okay? Let's be a church that gives the benefit of the doubt to one another, okay? What if we just gave the benefit of the doubt to everyone? Okay? Imagine you hear something about someone, and instead of thinking, really? Ooh. You thought, you know, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I heard that, but I'm going to go find out. I'm going to go talk to that person and find out, hey, I heard this about you. Is that true? Because I don't want to be wrong. And what if we found out that we were wrong? And what if we had bought that lie and then began to spread it and treat them differently? Let's just give people the benefit of the doubt. If you hear something awful about someone here, Give them the benefit of the doubt. And if you're really curious, go to them and say, hey, this is what I heard about you. Can you clear that up? Let's be a church that doesn't assume that we know what is going on in a person's heart, what they are thinking, why they do what they do or don't do. And by God's grace, let's do our best not to assume what is happening inside someone else's heart. Let's worry about our own heart. We have enough issues there, don't we? Listen, I don't have any mental energy to deal with whatever's going on in somebody else's heart because there's a lot of stuff in here that needs cleaned out. I'm busy. (laughs) Sorry, 
I can't worry about what's going on in that dude's heart because there's so much toxicity in here, so many issues that I need to deal with. I ain't, ain't nobody got time for that, right? How do we not do what the Corinthians were doing? Well, Paul and company would tell us today, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. For every wound that you experience, take 10 looks at Christ. For every hurt that you experience, take 10 looks at Christ. For every fear that you have, take 10 looks at Christ. For every doubt that you have, every anxiety that you have, every craving and lusting that you have, take 10 looks at Christ. For every piece of juicy gossip that lands in your ear, take 10 looks at Christ. That's how we keep from happening here at Grace what was happening at Corinth. We have to turn our eyes to Jesus. And what happens when a church looks upon Jesus? Well, there's a promise in Psalm 34, which was our call to worship today, and it's just waiting on us. Here's a promise in Psalm 34. It says, it's here for the taking. Who wants it? Come and get it. It's free. Let's be a church that takes God up on this promise. Psalm 34, 5. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. We want to be a radiant church in this city. So we must keep our eyes on Jesus. We must look to him and when we look to him, though we are bogged down by our sin, though we know all the junk in our hearts, we will not be ashamed. Because as Hebrews 2.11 tells us, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. When we look to Jesus, we become radiant disciples, we become a radiant church. And we begin to move beyond hurts, beyond misperceptions, beyond misunderstandings. And that's what Paul is suggesting when he says in verse 19 that he is speaking in Christ to the Corinthians In the sight of God. In other words, it's this gospel atmosphere that Paul does ministry in. The gospel is motivating Paul to continue to write to and to pray and to challenge the Corinthians. And so the gospel is the the atmosphere in which Paul does ministry and relates to other people. And why does Paul do this? Well, he tells the Corinthians, I'm here to build you up in Christ. I'm not here to tear you down. I'm here for your upbuilding. And because the gospel is at stake in this church, Paul will show up at Corinth, he says, and he will confront sin if the church has not repented. Paul says if he shows up and they are not as he wished them to be, repentant, then he won't be how they want him to be. He's going to see church discipline carried out. Listen, Paul loved the Corinthians enough to call them out. He endured suffering and he risked the awkwardness and tension that would exist because he loved them and he wanted to see them mature in Christ. And where did Paul get this love and this care for the Corinthians? The gospel. Duh, right? He looked to Christ crucified. The ministry philosophy of Paul and company has been copied from Jesus. They love and care for the Corinthians because that's what they have received in the gospel. So when Paul says that he saves up for the Corinthians, his children, and that he wants them and not their stuff, and that he will gladly spend and be spent for them, Paul learned all of that from Jesus. It's what Jesus has done for Paul in the gospel. 
And it's what Paul is doing for the Corinthians. Paul's just copying Jesus. God gave us Jesus, his beloved son. Our heavenly father saved up for us, his children. And Jesus gladly spent and was spent for our souls. And he wants us. He wants our hearts, not stuff from us. He doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need stuff. He wants our hearts. So in order to protect this church and in order to cultivate this culture of grace here at Grace, we have to keep our eyes on Jesus. We have to repent of our sin. And what leads us to repentance? It's the gospel. Romans 2, 4, it's the kindness of God. Scott Saul says, God's kindness that leads to, is God, God's kindness is what leads us to repentance, not our repentance that leads God to be kind. It's God's kindness that draws us back when we're doing all the stuff that the Corinthians are doing here. It's his kindness to us that pulls us back in, not us repenting and saying, God, please forgive me. God, I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again. And then him finally being like, okay, I'll be kind to you. His kindness sucks us in like a tractor beam, not the other way around. You get it the other way around and you'll, you'll live a miserable life. Let me ask you today, is there some sin that you need to repent of today? Perhaps what Paul lists here, quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, disorder, impurity, sexual morality, or sensuality. Do you need to repent of any of these? then just collapse on Jesus. That's all repentance is. You just collapse into the arms of Jesus. Repentance connects you once again with Jesus, your first love. You look to Jesus, and it will lead you to repentance. And that's where some of the Corinthians were. This church was on the verge of being destroyed from within, and so Paul calls on them to repent, to collapse on Jesus to come back to their first love. And if they do that, then this little church in Corinth would survive. The bleeding would stop and the church wouldn't be destroyed. And now for us, how do we not destroy this church? How do we not mess up this good thing that we have going here? We don't want to drive this thing into the ditch, do we? How do we cultivate a gospel culture here at Grace? How do we repent? Well, here's how you do it. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. For every wound, every hurt, every miscommunication, every misperception, every misunderstanding, for every juicy little piece of gossip that your precious little ears get to entertain, for every single one of those, take 10 looks at Christ. Let Robert Murray Machine encourage you to collapse on Jesus today. He said this, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the chief. 
Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart and so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. May the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart today so there's no room for all the stuff that was happening at Corinth in your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have one request today and it is very simple. Open the eyes of our heart to see Jesus' beauty and bounty better. And as we see Jesus more clearly, help us look at everything else from his perspective with his wisdom, his mercy, his grace. Heavenly Father, help us see people with gospel eyes because the aberrations of our fallen hearts always skew how we look at other people and even how we look at ourselves. Father, you know sometimes we idolize people and sometimes we demonize them. Please forgive us. Other times we only look at people in terms of how they've hurt us, how they've let us down, or how they can benefit us, what we can get from them. And that's not good either. Help us see your image in every person. Help us see what you see in our parents, our spouse, our children, our friends, our neighbors, and even in strangers. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.